Good morning. Look at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Oh, you can do better than that. They're already offended at you. Look at them and say, it's good to see you. Now look back at them and say, it's good to see me too, all right? Hey, we're so glad that you're here. Welcome to Crossroads Church. My name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads. And what that means is every single week, I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus, and Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. And so if you've ever asked the question, what is God like, you don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about Jesus. We wrote it on the wall if you need some help. And what that means is you're going to need a Bible to follow along. And so if you forgot your Bible, we got you covered. You can just slip up your hand and one of our ushers, one of our team members will get one to you. And then if you don't have a Bible, take that blue Bible, take it home, read it every single day because every time you do, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, we started this series a couple weeks ago in the book of Genesis. And so once you turn open, you'll have an easy time finding the book because it is at the beginning, like its title. The word Genesis means the beginning. And so let's start at the beginning. And we're going to look um, at the end of chapter 1 and the end of chapter 2 in a series that we have entitled Good News from the Start. So I want you to look at the end of chapter 1 starting in verse 27. And you can say amen when you're there. Amen. So God created man in his own image. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every, every living thing that moves on the earth. Let me point out that the word in Hebrew for heavens is also interchangeable for the word for skies. So one translation may say skies and another one say heavens. But from the Hebrew's perspective, he's talking about what is above and what is below in this poem. So when he says the birds of the heavens and every other living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every place plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruits you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens to everything that creeps on the earth everything that has the breath of life I've given every green plant for food and it was so and God saw that everything he made and behold it was very good and there was evening and morning the sixth day now, chapter 2 uh, kind of zooms in a little more. You have the broad picture of chapter 1, chapter 2 zooms in. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because, it, because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. And then verse 4 is where you see the shift. 
And these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God had made the earth and the heavens. Then from verse 5 down, he's going to talk about how uh, on the sixth day he made, it man, made man, made him from the dust of the ground. He breathed life into him. He describes Eden and these rivers that flow out of Eden. Then God saw in verse 18, you'll see that God saw that man was alone and it was not good for man to be alone. So God caused a deep sleep to come over Adam. God took one of Adam's ribs and formed Eve. A helper in verse 20, it says, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and so every beast of the field but for Adam there was not found a helper for him so the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from man he made into woman and brought her to the man then the man said, this is last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Will you pray with me? Gracious heavenly father, we love you and we thank you for who you are and who you are to us. We thank you that you have left for us this text and that it stood the test of time. Let us be changed by it. Let us submit to it. Let us look for you in them and let everything that we say and everything we do bring glory to God and good to this valley. And everyone said, Amen. So uh, this is the uh, the angst that I have is uh, when I say I'm going to preach through books of the Bible, it means I'm going to have to preach through books of the Bible. <laughs> Amen. And yet, I did this early on in ministry as a young pastor, and I thought, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to preach through. I'm gonna try to preach every weekend. I'm gonna preach to people who some have already forgotten more than I know. Rick Murray, and and some, I'm gonna have to do my best, and I can't use my practical experience, my life experience. So, some of you've been married longer than I've been alive. Somebody say, "Oh no" to that. And, uh, and so I thought, man, what could I bring to the table? And so I thought, man, instead of just uh, preaching topical sermons, instead of just getting up every weekend and, and, and trying my best to give some practical advice or the 27 steps to being awesome, and let me tell you, I tried the 27 steps to being awesome. They did not work. You can ask my wife, all right? And so instead of trying to bring some tips and tricks and some practical advice for life, uh, I thought, well, let's, let's allow the text to lead us. And so many years ago, we decided that we we're going to preach through books of the Bible. And we've preached through many books of the Bible. And we together uh, have studied and I formed a, a sermon planning team or sermon prep team. And maybe that's peculiar for me because maybe you guys think I go in and, and somehow I connect with God and God downloads like a hard drive 
on to me and I just get, and it, it, it doesn't work like that. And, and I, I get a group of people around me uh, uh, that are uh, older and wiser and some younger and, and, and bolder and, and, and I bring them together and go, hey, let's, let's talk about this text and what problems, what questions come up from this text. About 80% of the time, uh, we have this meeting, and we begin to talk about them. We've went through First John. We've been through uh, Romans. We've been through Galatians. We've been through, um, we've been through Mark for two years in the book of Mark, in the book of John. We, we've done uh, half of the book of Daniel. We've done many series inside of that, and, and all of that, and now uh, coming up on seven years as being the lead pastor next week. No, 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 knock it off. You, no, 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 no. I thought someone was going to start the wave, and no, you missed your shot. Uh, and, and, and yet we've been trying to, to, to do this, and some of, uh, let, let me tell you that there's this, there's this, uh, this kind of uh, comfort that comes through preaching through books of the Bible in that I know what's next. Oftentimes, I think some of the biggest anxiety for a pastor is what will I preach? Well, I don't have to worry about what because what is already set in place. We're preaching through this particular book and we just go, here's the next passage. Here's the next grouping of passages. And, and so what was taken away? Now the question of is how and, and, and how do I communicate it? And, and, and then in that, there's some creativity that comes. It's like, oh, okay, well, I'm just thinking about how to say it rather than just what I'm going to say. And so uh, I, I think about you and I think about who's going to be here. And, and, and then there's uh, an unexpectedness to it. And then with the Lompoc campus, I think about how would this area, how does this region, how we communicate these texts. And, and then there's some ways in which you have to kind of make the leap from the ancient language or the ancient setting to where we are now, and some of those uh, those those jumps, the the river that we cross of uh, textual context it is sometimes a puddle. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's like okay. Right, right. But even then, when Jesus says love your neighbor as yourself, people begin to ask the question, "What? Who's my?" Some of you should know your neighbor, and you don't, right? And, and, and yet, he was talking about other tribes, other people, other races, other nations. He was talking about Samaritans that just lived up on the hill from them. He was talking about people who had gotten the title of something other than human, something other than us, and you're to love them like you love you. And here's why Jesus says it that way, because he knows you have a propensity to love you. Let me give you an example. Some of your, uh, how many of you have ever taken a group picture? How many of you, when someone shows you that group picture, who's the first person you look for? <laughs> Case close. Jesus knows you have a propensity to love you. Now, now, he says this, and there's not a big kind of jump that we need to take from the text to right now, from then to now. Love your neighbor as yourself is a short jump in textual context. Now, if we were to read the book of Leviticus 
and we were to read the laws, the kosher laws, the Levitical laws. Man, some of those things are as wide as the Grand Canyon to try to figure out how to make sense of that in 2022. And yet we give people a Bible, a book, and where do you usually start in a book? The beginning. And yet people ask the question all the time, where do I read the Bible? What book of the Bible do I read first? And then notice the anxiety that many of you have when you have a friend who's a new believer or someone, and, and they ask you the question, they're like, hey, I want to read the Bible. And they're like, which book? And you in your mind are thinking of all the books they should not read first. <laughs> like, let's be honest. Like, you're like, just, you know, start in the beginning, maybe, but maybe start like two thirds of the way in, or maybe even further than that, like five eighths of the way through and hit the little Johns, John one, two, and three, <laughs> then jump back to the big John, right? And then maybe once you're kind of solidified in that Jesus is the answer, you love Jesus, then you can back up and read Genesis. And that's essentially what we've done as a church. Right? That's essentially what we've done as a current. Now, some of you, you weren't here in the Gospel of John. Some of you weren't here in the book of Romans. Some of you weren't here. I would, I would, I would encourage you, if you want, to, you want to listen to those sermons, some of them are pretty good. And, and you go back and listen to those and dive in. Here's where we got to wrestle with is we believe that all of Scripture is God breathed. We believe all of the Bible is, is true and points us to the person of life. His name is Jesus. Now there's this story that uh, after the resurrection, Jesus uh, looked quite different. Have you ever ran, you remember what it was like to run into your teacher at the grocery store? You're like, <laughs> or run into your pastor at a restaurant? You're like, what are you doing here, right? <laughs> You're, we thought you lived at the church. It's like, I do, just across the parking lot, right? And, and you're like that, that out of context, you know, like seeing me without a hat on. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and yet there, there's like this out of context kind of thing. And that's what happens after the resurrection with the person of Jesus, his glorified state, his glorified body. And these men are walking. They're on this road to Emmaus and they're walking. We call them two fools. Like th this is the title, just like we have titles for the prodigal son. And actually it's not really about the son. It's really a story about a father who had You've been here a while. And uh, I was giving you a hint. Don't, brag, don't pat yourself on the back too much, right? And yet it's a story about a father who had two sons and this two fools on the road to Emmaus. Why, why do we call them foolish? Jesus doesn't call them foolish. And I think we have to be careful in labeling things like two fools on the road to Emmaus or doubting Thomas. And then, because what we'll do is we'll find ourselves in those scenarios. Now, here's what's beautiful about this particular book, is this isn't a story about all the heroes getting it right. It's really a story about everyone else getting it wrong and one person getting it right. And you know what that's good news for? Who that's good news for? Us. Somebody say amen to that. 
It's a story. You're in, you're in good company. So if you're like, man, I need to get myself together before I come to Jesus. Like, friend, the only way you're going to get, to get, get yourself together is by coming to Jesus. It's impossible to do it outside of him. And that's what we read is we need Jesus to help guide us and lead us. And so they, these two fools are telling Jesus stories. They're literally like talking and Jesus walks up behind them and, and says, what are you guys talking about? It's like, what, where have you been? Like, do you not know? Have you not heard of this Jesus of Nazareth? We thought he was the Messiah, but the Romans killed him. He's been in the tomb for three days. Some of the ladies among us said that they went to the tomb and it was empty, but we don't know. He's like, do tell, <laughs> right? Tell me more. They're telling Jesus stories to Jesus and missing the fact that they are with Jesus. Then it says this. It says that Jesus then opened the scriptures to them, a metaphor, saying that he began to reveal to them all of scripture concerning himself. He began to point to all the ways the Old Testament, all the ways the Torah, the Pentateuch, the, the, the books of the law, the prophets, the, the minor prophets, the ma major prophets, all of the two-thirds of the book that we go, man, I don't really understand that. I don't know that we could go read that first. And yet it was those people who studied that. And they thought in them they would find life. They read them, study. and then the author of life, as John tells us, in the beginning was the word. This word in Greek is the word logos. He steals a Greek word. So it's not a Hebrew word. He, he, he actually steals a word from Greek philosophy. In the beginning was the logos. See, they believed that consciousness and mind and language was the very thing behind the universe. Where science would tell us that the greatest form of intelligence, the highest form of intelligence is language. That our ability to communicate, our ability to consciously talk to one another, to use digits, random digits put onto paper. And then we have not just one language, but, but many hundreds and hundreds of different languages written and spoken that somehow we can take all of this randomness, put it in order and communicate one with another. What a fascinating idea. And see, the Greeks believed that language was behind life. Information, consciousness was behind life. And John, this young boy who was about 17 when he followed around Jesus, opens his gospel with this, in the beginning was this mind, this logos, this intelligence. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Not only was he with God and there he was God. And then he says something fascinating. He says, and then the word became flesh. He poured himself into a man and he walked among us. He lived among us and he was the light of men. He was the light and the life of men and the light shines into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. John tells this story and yet we read of Jesus opening up all of scripture and saying all of scripture is about me. 
all of, of Scripture, all of, of your, your poets, all of your prophets, all of your searching. Like, ultimately, Jesus is the embodiment of life. And he says, when you open this book. Now, what's interesting about this book and what's different? Here's what you have to realize when we open this book right off the bat is there are thousands of books being printed right now. There are millions of books that are in print. Millions of books that are sitting on shelves and many of them forgotten. Many of them on your shelves. Think about all the dozens of books that you have. Think about them stacked up in different places where you might find yourself needing a moment to read you get that later. And, and, yet, and yet all of the books that you, you find, many of them will be forgotten. Many of the books that are printed now will be lost in translation. And yet this book, the book of Genesis is close to 3,000 years old. Now, 3,000 years. And yet we open its pages and we already have a clue. We have the New Testament. We, we don't look forward to the coming of the Messiah. We stand in the New Testament. We stand in the person of Jesus who says all of Scripture is about him. We stand with the person of Jesus that we know he came and lived and, and died and rose again. And now we look back and we read and we look, not being foolish like two fools who are telling Jesus stories to Jesus and miss that they are with Jesus. Jesus, but we look to the scriptures, not looking for myth, not looking for legend, not even looking for science, but looking for who? The person of, oh, you can do better than that. The person of, Jesus. see, every time we read the Bible, we read the Bible to look for Jesus. It's in Jesus we find keys to reading this book. Now, the book of Genesis creates some problems for us. It, it creates some problems with how we live today and how we think about the world around us. And here's the reality is everything is preaching a sermon. Everything is preaching to us about how we should think about life. Last week, we talked about a worldview. We talked about a worldview as answering these questions. Essentially, the origin of life, origin meaning morality, destiny, or these questions that come up are where did we come from, why are we here, what are we doing, and where is this thing going? At the end of the sermon last week, I, I, I talked about a fascinating story of probability, of meeting someone in the airport that I wouldn't normally see, and, and then driving across the country for four days, and then meeting them in, uh, along the 101, and, and them seeing my van, and, and pulling up beside The odds of that happening, seeing the same person in Phoenix, Arizona, driving for four days, and then seeing them on the coast, driving the 101, four Four days 
later. Now the odds are stacked up. And I started thinking about that illustration because I wanted to use that story. And here's why I wanted to use that story, because there was a lot of information up front. There was a lot that we were talking about. And we're talking about Darwinian evolution. We're talking about Stephen Meyer and Stephen Meyer, uh, this PhD from Cambridge. I showed you a video and I knew we we're going to have all this information about all the things concerning our worldview. And then I got to tell some kind of story because if I don't, you'll look at me the way you're looking at me right now. And I got to pull you back in. I got to engage you. This can't just be a lecture. This has got to be, be something more than that. It's got to be relatable. It's got to be personal. And I started thinking about this story. And I thought it could really work against me if I started saying, Tyler and I were, as he was listening to the sermon, Pastor Tyler was like, man, this could go really bad for him if he doesn't use this scenario right. Because here's what we set up. I said, the probability of evolution, uh, the probability of the theory of evolution, meaning life spontaneously generating over time from nothing, the odds of that happening, the amount of time it would take, the math just doesn't quite add up. And mathematicians have a problem with this and they say it's impossible. It, 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 it is, and so some don't want to even want to use that word, but it is so improbable that you might as well use the words interchangeably, impossible or improbable. Either one, take it or leave it. David, David Berlinski says, which one do you want, impossible or improbable? They are the same thing. And then I tell you how impossible it would be to meet someone in the airport and then see them four days later on driving on the road. And then it happens. So I tell you something that seems to be improbable and then it happens. And they thought, man, that could, well, wait a second. You're kind of working against yourself. You said that evolution is improbable, impossible. This meeting is improbable and impossible, yet it happens. So could not, but that wasn't my point. My point was how you answer origin will determine how you answer meaning. How you think about how we got here, they have to be uh, coherent and, and they have to uh, coincide one with another. Origin, meaning. So what I said was, was I see that moment, that interaction that seems improbable. You ever had improbable moments in your life? Have you ever had coincidences that just seemed like, whoa, that was something different? You ever had those moments where you go, that just, the math just doesn't add up. It seems like there is some kind of plan to this thing. See, how you answer these origin questions will determine how you see meaning in your life. The impossible moments, the improbable moments. See, ultimately, when I read the book of Genesis and I read that God made man from the dust of the ground and he made us in his image, how I see this particular passage determines, takes me right from origin into meaning. And I'll have to wrestle with the implications of that if we are simply the result of blind, unguided, natural processes, then all my life adds up to being is unguided, unplanned, random chance and probability. And all of a sudden, I really wrestle with me. Now, here's what you got to realize is most people 
don't believe that there's no meaning to the life no meaning to life most people are not atheists in their belief system most people do not have a purely naturalistic humanistic worldview most people believe there's something behind everything because no thing can come from nothing and yet when i look around the universe i see something and i see things that have the appearance of design and yet there's this sermon that's being preached by new atheists by those who have a naturalistic worldview or have a religion of naturalism. What they would try to suggest is remove the temptation of using your cognitive, conscious, intelligent mind that you use to communicate with, that you take all of this random information and you seamlessly put it together and somehow people are able to interpret it. Remember what it was like to text with one finger? Wasn't that some of you are too young to remember T9. How many of you remember what it was like to text with one finger, right? One. Uh, how many remember what it was like uh, before there was texting? How many of you were some of the first people to use email? <laughs> right? How many of you were picking up the phone and turning the thing and asking for the arm? Whoa, yes, you needed someone to connect you, some intelligent mind to put the plugs together. And here's the reality is it couldn't be random. How many of you, the operator ever connected you to the wrong house? They put the wrong plug in the wrong place because there had to be some type of intelligence behind that. It's not just happenstance. And yet what scientific discovery has told us is that information is found in the cell. See, this is a recent discovery with the double helix with the DNA is that in 1952 with this discovery, and this changed everything. Before that, they believed there was protoplasm, and they could not see into the cell. They could not see that there was, they thought that it was just random bit of ooze. They could not see that there was actually, as Stephen Meyer calls it, a signature in the cell. That DNA inside of the cell had language. And actually they could see building blocks and little machines moving information along the way, along the protein. And, and that actually every single person had this unique code about them that would tell you how tall you were going to be. I wish someone had hacked my code, you know? <laughs> right? Like, it's going to tell you what you're going to look like and the features you had. And you, you actually now can, can trace back generations. You can actually read the language. 23 and me blew up after this, friends. Right? You can find out so much about a person. How a signature in the cell, a code, a language. Bill Gates calls DNA one of the most sophisticated, it's a sophisticated language far more than just computer code. How, how many of you ever tried to write code? Through, like, it's a difficult thing. That's why three people in here do it. <laughs> What's wrong with the rest of us, right? 
And yet, when it comes to code, you can't just randomly change the digits. You can't just go in and, and think that over time that somehow monkeys with typewriters will begin to write the sonnets of Shakespeare. This is the type of messaging that gets propagated. This is an actual real illustration, but the math doesn't add up. But here's the reality is that us sitting here today, most of us and most people are not ready to just buy in to Darwin's theory. Not everyone in here, maybe you're wrestling with it. Like, I can't fully get down with the idea that, that we came from, from apes and, and now we're human beings. I can't quite get down with that, but, but there's some stuff, right? There's some stuff in there that I can accept, and there's some stuff in there that I want to get down with because, man, I, I want to be scientific about things. The question is, what do you mean? And are you willing to search? Are you willing to dig? Or are you just accepting sermons? See, there's kind of this, this kind of irony of what we're doing here today. Because when we read this particular book, here's what I say. Let's go through books of the Bible and let's journey together. And don't take my word for it. Actually look into the book. And, I, and there are all kinds of different people with different opinions about this book. I remember my freshman year in college. I remember my Old Testament survey class. My Old Testament survey class, uh, I had a New Testament professor that had actually helped translate the Dead Sea Scrolls from Hebrew. Man, this guy was a scholar, a brilliant man. And, and, and yet we're all freshmen and most of us are coming from our, 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 uh, our Sunday school classes and we're, we're at a liberal arts university. It's not just a Bible college, but it was kind of founded on the scriptures and at a ministry school and a music school. And so I went there thinking, man, I'm going to learn the Bible and I'm going to learn about Jesus and, and I'm going to be prepared to preach and, and all those different things. And I got into class and, and I had a professor who just liked to stir the pot. And I had a professor who had some different views about this particular book that we're reading here today. And midway through the semester, as he would argue with each one of us differently and, and different uh, um, students would speak up from their Sunday school class and things that they believed. And it was almost as if his motive, his, like, I'm in Bible school, I'm not even at a secular university. If that university is trying to remove kids from their faith, go to a, a, a university that's supposed to teach you the Bible, and you have a professor who's constantly trying to get you to deconstruct your belief system. And so I remember this one particular day, my professor, uh, a doctor, uh, a theologian, with a bunch of 18-year-olds, says, we've been dancing around this all semester. We've been dancing around this. What's the problem with the book of Genesis? He goes, what's wrong with snakes talking? He goes, snakes don't talk now. And he says, where's Mount Sinai? Nobody knows. Then he says, here's the problem. These are fictional inspired stories. And I remember what it was like to be 18 
getting hit in the face. And what does he mean? They're fictional inspired stories. Then he tries to say this. It doesn't make them any less authoritative. I was like, you just said fictional. You just said these, these are made up. I mean, I, I don't know that Harry Potter should be a standard for authority in my life. Do you? Some of you are like, I object. I think, <laughs> I think there's a lot of lessons in that, right? I, I don't know that I, I want to live my life based on fictional inspired stories. And see, that's a real wrestling match for us. I had a professor say, where's Mount Sinai? Nobody knows. And then I had a guy who taught convocation, taught in chapel, and he told us about how he went on a tour on Mount Sinai. <laughs> I was like, who's right? Who's wrong here? Now, what's the point, Pastor Sam? The point is, you can't depend on me. Times you can't depend on a professor. Or just because they have doctor, theologian, pastor, preacher, scientist, MD, OD. Just because they have titles and letters and digits in front of them doesn't make them an authority on truth. See, here's what you have to wrestle with. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not saying I'm the most truthful person. He's not saying that I have the most facts and evidence. What he's saying is I am the embodiment of truth. And here's where we have to wrestle as believers is I have to go, what do I believe about this text? And what is the evidence? And when someone says the science is settled, what do they mean by that? Because there are people who disagree on whether or not these are fictional and inspired. Can I tell you that those people who try to pull in Darwinian evolution through evolutionary creationism have to somehow suggest that these are fictional inspired stories? And so uh, organizations like BioLogos will have to somehow change the text or reinterpret the text to make it allegory or mythology or an archetype. Although some of those things are in the book, what they have to then suggest, that's the Big Bang. <laughs> what they then have to suggest is that somehow this text is different. Now, we have to wrestle with that. Well, where does that leave me? That leaves me with some work to do. What that leaves me with is I have to ask questions. And if you're ready to ask questions about the text, man, there are things that we can wrestle with. There's some strong proponents to say this is true, and actually there's scientific evidence to support it. There's good logical conclusions to support it. Then you have to ask the question, when people say the science is settled, is that all of the facts? 
when they say that the fossil record shows evidence of Darwinian evolution, do you know that that's just foolishness? Do you know that actually leading evolutionary biologists suggest that the fossil record to support Darwinian evolution is actually lacking and inept? That actually it says that most of what we know are shattered pieces of skull and fragments of bones. What you see put before you, when you see in a natural history museum, when you see the progression, do you know that what they do is an extrapolation of a small part and then begin because they have a worldview, they have something, a messaging to propagate that most of the rest of the skeletal structure will actually be fabricated? And you'll have to ask, what bones did they actually find? What bones did they actually fabricate? You go, wait a second, they're making some of this up? They're fabricating things? There's not consensus? Hey, Becca, won't you go ahead and join me on? And yet, here we are in a text where, yeah, some professors... Some things that you Google about Genesis, some ads that you'll see come through on your YouTube channel will suggest that these are merely fictional, inspired stories. But yet, what I read in the text is that human beings are unique. What I read in the text is that God made man in his I get better at my job. (laughs) God made man in his image. image. What does that mean? It, It means that out of all of the created order, out of all that you see around you, human beings are distinct and unique. Have you found that to be true? Diverse, unique, reflect. What it begins to tell me is things about gender, male and female. Biology tells me that. Science supports that. That there are not 27 genders. There are not 150 genders. You can try to cancel it, but it's 3,000 years old. It's been going viral for thousands of years. Now you can try to lie to yourself and say it's something different and the author of lies will deceive us but in this book that we just read you go there's no science in there and God made them in his image. And what you'll see is actually the Trinity and God made man in his own image in the image of God he created them male and female. Then you'll see this. You'll see what marriage is. You'll see that God saw it wasn't good for man to be alone. Have you found that it's not good for man to be alone? You find that textually to be true? Experientially to be true? Social scientists will tell you, not good. Isolation is not from 
God. And yet now all these studies are coming about as we were isolated during the pandemic, what it's done to children who were alone. Scientific evidence. You go, what science backs this up? All of science. Science is catching up with the Bible. Remember when the Bible said it had a beginning? Remember that? It was awesome. You remember when science said that? Way later. The Bible says man shouldn't be alone and that God has uniquely made man and woman together different. Equal, but different. Unique. And male and female together reflect the glory and image of God. Because God is neither male or female. God has masculine traits and feminine traits. And he makes man in his own image. And he created them male and female. Why is it that we are drawn to love stories? Why is it that movies, no matter the battle, no matter the gore, no matter the intensity, right in the middle of all of it, it's like it's actually a love story. I know it's about zombies, but it's really a love story. Right, because there's something about marriage. There's something about a husband and a wife. And then what happens? All because two people fell in love. They came together. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The ending of all, all of our myths that we make up, the ones that we plot, it's, it's, and they lived happily ever after. And the, and the curtains dropping, and they're holding hand in hand, and they pushing a stroller, they got lots of kids. And you're like, that's a great ending. I want that. And the Bible for 3,000 years has been saying, that's good. And how you answer this question of like, where did we come from will really determine how you find meaning in your life and what you value around you, what you will look at, what you will hold distinct, what you will fight for. So here's what you got to realize. This book has always been for your good. It's good news from the start. And it starts with God's plan for us. And that plan has always been good, even when we went astray. Even when he had good plans for us, like rebellious children. We want to decide what's good on our own. God has a plan of redemption through the person of Jesus. Why do I know human beings are different out of all other creation? Because God chose to become one. Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. God became a man and dwelt among us, and he lived the life. He carried out the plan 
the plan from the beginning. Jesus is the good news from the start. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and who you are to us. We ask for your grace. Help us in all ways to acknowledge you and you'll direct our paths. Help us to wrestle with the text. Jesus, I don't believe these are fictional inspired stories. These are real stories about real events that you inspired men to write down. And that's why they've stood the test of time because they're true, they're real, and they're really for us and for our good. Help us to wrestle with the evidence that we see around, not to just take every sermon that's being preached, every secular sermon and every sacred sermon. Help us look for truth to wrestle with the details, with the evidence, not to be slothful in our pursuit of truth, but diligent for your glory and the good of this valley. And everyone said, amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise? <laughs>